much, Anna. Appreciate that. We're going to look at Matthew chapter uh, 16 tonight. I should have copied a lesson. It's called uh, Understanding the Church. Tonight is just entitled Simplicity. And um, uh, we're going to take a few weeks and just go through the New Testament and look at different places where the church is mentioned and what the character of the church is, what is the conduct of the church, so that we might be able to understand the uh, the whole concept of what the church is. Uh, man, I just want to challenge you as we're opening up our Bibles, make sure to get one of these brochures about the men's prayer conference coming up. There's a registration in there. You need to mark whether you're going to take uh, meals or not, and that will determine what the cost will be to you. And so that's a Friday and a Saturday. That would be a great opportunity for you to meet with the Lord. Brother uh, Palmer, Tom Palmer, evangelist Tom Palmer, will be speaking and we have some workshops uh, planned, and uh, well, I think it's going to be a great time uh, being able to get alone with the Lord. Matthew chapter 16, in uh, verse 13, says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, and, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Amazing, amazing passage of Scripture uh, because Jesus mentions the church here for the first time in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is our text. He said, Thou art Peter, and uh, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the church, what is the church? If somebody was to ask you, what is the church? Or you were to ask someone else, what is the church? What would be the response that you would have in being, being able to explain what the church is? I, I really feel that uh, we have lost in America, in the present-day contemporary America, when it comes to religious things, we've lost a whole sense of knowing and understanding what is the church. And it certainly is not a building. Uh, the church are, is a believers. And uh, so when we gather together, the church is present. Uh, it is uh, a called-out body of believers united together for worship and service of God. And I think that is so, is so important for us to understand the church. It comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. Uh, literally, God calls us out of our sin. He calls us out of the world. He places into his body, which is the church. And so uh, the church literally is a called out body of believers that are united together. And here's the important thing for worship and service. Uh, the church is not an organization that was uh, planned and per put together for the purpose of meeting physical needs and social needs 
although in the church those needs are met. But the function of the church and the reality of the church is the church is a place where as we gather together, Jesus said where two or three are gathered together, I'm in the midst. So believers are called out assembly that come together for the purpose of worshiping our Savior and then serving one another within the body of Christ. And so it is a called out body of believers united together for worship and service. I, I get tickled sometimes because uh, uh, Christian artists now and promotions with all kinds of Christian concerts and uh, there weren't big Christian concerts years ago. You used to go to church and have a hymn sing or something like that. Now you got to have another venue in which you rent a big building and you have a great big entertainment thing and rock concert in name of Christianity. But what tickles me is they always say, come and worship with us. And I feel like calling them up and saying, no, you mean come be entertained with us. You know, I'm not against entertainment. But the reality is you bring a multitude of people together that have all kinds of different backgrounds and faiths. Uh, they're not, you're not worshiping the Lord together because you believe completely different things. You might enjoy their music and they do a wonderful job singing music. But it's not worship. It's entertainment. And so because of that, we've developed this whole mindset of what we think the church is. And the reality is it's not the church at all. And uh, so a company of uh, Christians, if you think you could describe it this way, as a company of Christians hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, observe their own religious rites, hold their own religious meetings, manage their own affairs according to the regulations prescribed for the body for order's sake. In other words, we, we, we are, we're an independent, fundamental Baptist church. That means we gather together to observe our religious rights according to what we understand in the scriptures. We function and conduct ourselves, whether it's in the area of business or ministry or whatever, as we see fit. We don't answer to our headquarters. We don't answer to another organization. Another church or another organization does not dictate to us when do you have church or how do you have a church meeting or when do you serve communion or, or how do you have baptisms. Uh, no, a church is a body of believers that has been called out by the grace of God out of the world and put into the body of Christ and we worship the Lord based on what the Word of God has to say in reference to how we understand it and what it, how we can apply it into our life. That's why I don't dictate to the church down the road. There's churches all around Tom's River. I don't agree with how they function and how they, but I don't go over and say, you're doing it wrong. I don't try to run those churches. We have one responsibility, and that's our church. And sometimes people forget that they, it's okay to say, this is my church, and be happy about that and rejoice in that because we have been taught 
in America that everybody has to be on the equal plane and you can't have any idea or acknowledgement of the fact that maybe you're successful or you're stronger or you're better or you're uh, able to function as you please because you don't want to offend anybody and you don't want anybody to feel bad about themselves. And so when we say this is our church and people kind of hesitate, whether they say, amen. But when we, we, we identify the fact that it's our church, it's okay to say amen. It's okay to be excited that it's our church. And uh, I'll tell you, I rejoice in the fact that the Lord has given me a church to be a part of, and I can live and grow in my life as a Christian because of the interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. And... Um, I had a guy years ago, he started coming to church here, and, he's, and he came in and was talking to me. He said, man, he said, just seems like you're an awful strong local church. <laughs> I said, well, you're figuring it out. Amen. I said, you're absolutely right. I am absolutely strong focused on the local church. And I learned that early in my life because I would write the ministries when I went to Bible college and ask those preachers at those churches to pray for me and all these different things, and I never got a response for one of them. And I realized this, that it's my local church that when I want to get married will marry me. It's my local church when I have a problem will pray for me. It's the local church that will visit me when I'm sick in the hospital. It's the local church that will bury me when I'm dead. None of the televangelists are going to do that. None of these world churches are going to do that. And so the local church is a vital part of who we are as believers, and we ought to understand what the church is, how it functions, and how we relate one towards another. So the church, the Greek word ecclesia, is used 115 times in the New Testament. And if God uses it that many times, we ought to at least take some time and acknowledge what God has to say about the church. The amazing thing is this, the first and last instruction that God gives to the church, the first instruction is here in chapter 16 in verse 18, he mentions the church that he is the foundation. He tells Peter, thou art Peter, which means the Greek word for Peter is little stone, and he says, upon this rock, which he means huge or massive stone. So the Catholic Church tries to say, well, that's talking about Peter as being the foundation of the church. It's very specific, very direct in the Greek language of what he is saying. He says, Peter, you acknowledge the fact that I'm the Christ, but I want you to understand this. You're a small stone, but I'm the cornerstone. And upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So very simplistic in his explanation, in the first time he mentions the church, he mentions it in reference to he being the foundation of it. So the church can't be built on anything else. It can't be built on movements. It can't be built on personalities. It can't be built on financial gain. It has to be built on Christ and Christ alone. Now, the last time he mentions the church 
is in Revelation 3.16. We'll turn over to you. You can look at it later. But the last time he mentions the church, in reference to his relationship to the church, he says, I'll spew you thee out of my mouth. Uh, I, I'll tell you, what a, what a drastic contrast from Matthew 16 to Revelation chapter 3. And he says that because he's talking to the Laodicean church. And a Laodicean, a Laodicea comes from a, a compound Greek word. It comes, first part of it is laos, which means people. So then the second half of it is decay, which means customs or rights. And so when the revelation is, is given to John and he is describing the different churches, the seven churches of, of, a, of a Asia Minor, uh, he describes the last church that represents the time frame in which we live as being the church that functions based on human rights. And he said, because you're functioning based on human rights rather than based on the fact that I'm the foundation, if you don't repent, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Now, there, that's two tremendous statements in reference to the church when it's first mentioned and when it's last mentioned. Then his final reminder is in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto, these, uh, unto you these things in the churches. So he reminds John, he reminds us that the book of Revelation was given so as to remind his, us about his dealings with the churches. And then he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so what I want to do for a couple of weeks here, two, three weeks, maybe 10 weeks, maybe 100, I don't know, but <laughs> we'll just take a few weeks. And I just want to go through the New Testament and look at the Greek word ecclesia, look at the English word church, and look how it's used in the Bible so that we can gain some understanding about the church and make some practical assumptions, practical realities as far as applications into our life. Now, here we go. There is a principle in the Bible uh, that it's called the principle of first mention. And so whenever something's mentioned, when you're reading scriptures and God mentions something the first time, for instance, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first mention of God is in reference to his creating power. And so that means anything to do with creation from that point on, the starting point is that God is the creator. And so the first time he mentions the church, if we're going to interpret scripture based on that principle of first mention, then everything about the church that we study has to be built on the premise that Jesus Christ is the foundation. Because once he says something the first time, the meaning at that point carries all the way through. You can't change halfway through. You can't change and say, oh, well, I, I don't like what it's saying at that point, so we can make it mean something else. No, you can't. The foundation is still Christ. So the second time that he mentions is in Matthew chapter 18. So 
The church is a place, first of all, as we're going to look at, a place to discipline disobedient brethren. It's a shocking thought that Jesus establishes that the church is upon him. He is the foundation, and the very next time, he doesn't mention the church again until Matthew chapter 18, and it's in reference to the disciplining of church dis, dis, uh, disobedient church members. Notice in Matthew chapter 18. Now, you're all getting nervous. Don't get nervous. You'll be all right. Anytime I've preached on this passage, everybody always gets nervous about it. But though, um, Matthew chapter 18, in verse 17, he says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. So what is the church? The church is called out body believers that gather together for worship and service of God and worship and service of Christ, who is the foundation of everything that we are as believers. So if he won't hear them, if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect the to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now that's very strong. That's very strong indeed. Because he is dealing with a wayward brother, a person who is disobedient to the word. Now, this is an unheard of practice in churches nowadays. And even mentioning it could end up having a preacher put out of the pulpit. <laughs> but uh, we're going to mention it and look at it. Amen. Since Jesus talked about it. First of all, notice... When we talk about disobedience and discipline, there is a personal responsibility. Notice in verse 15, it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. So he's dealing with an offense. In Corinthians, he would say, uh, you know, it's not right. It's not good for you to take one another to law. You know, literally, he deals with the thing that it ought to be taken care of within the church. And uh, I, was, I was at a seminar years ago, probably eight, 15 or 18 years ago, and the seminar was all about this matter of the legalities of dealing with discipline problems in the church, that the church, instead of believers going to the secular courts all the time to settle their offenses and things that are going on, that the church ought to set up a board to where they hear the matters and they solve the problems within the church. And I thought that will go over like a lead balloon when I go home and say we're going to do that. But the, the, re the reality is offenses will happen because we're people. We're sinful people. And so there are offenses that will happen. How are you going to deal with the offense? Because we're not supposed to have division among us. We're supposed to be united together, so how are you going to deal with the offenses? There's personal responsibility. He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Very, that's why I entitled this thing, this lesson, Simplicity. Very simple. How do you solve problems and conflicts within the body of Christ? If you have been offended or you have been an offense to someone else, you go to one another and you get it right with God. It is that simple. But the problem is we won't do it because we're too prideful. 
The problem is we won't do it because of the fact we want to hold our position as the one who was offended. And I'll tell you, I feel I have my right to get even. No, if there is an offense in the church, then you need to go to someone and you need to make it right. And uh, I'll tell you, over the years, I have learned this is a powerful principle. I've had people that have offended me. I've had, I have been an offense to other people. And I'm going to tell you, the easiest way to solve the offenses is to go to one another and say, I was wrong and I forgive you. Release me from your vengeance and commit the thing to the Lord. Now, the amazing thing is this. Oftentimes, people won't do that. And uh, I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, I know there's this conflict between me and so-and-so, and, and uh, it just is not getting better. I can't solve the problem. They won't listen to me. To what, what do I do? Then just give them over to God and, and pray for them and let the vengeance of God work in their life. And so you can't force somebody to get right with God, but you can at least apply Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man's overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual. So somebody's got to be spiritual. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I have found this just as quickly as someone else that can become aggressive and angry and resentful. I can do that too. I don't want to fall into that trap. And so if we go to one another in a, in a spiritual situation and want to make things right with one another, then we can carry each other's burdens. Because the reality is we all have burdens that are, we are carrying, and oftentimes those burdens become the, the igniter of our conflicts that we have. And so you go to your brother. You go to him. You have personal responsibility both people have a responsibility here. The person who has caused the offense and the person who has been offended. We're to go to our brothers and make it right. And uh, so not only that, but I see in verse 16, there is a scriptural reliability because in verse 16 it says, if he will not hear thee, the reality is that he won't listen to you. I've had a few people like that. And it says, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So you can't get things right personally. Then there is a scriptural way to approach this, and that's you take somebody with you. Why? Deuteronomy, and we won't look up all these verses, you can look them up, but Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, Hebrews 10, 28, all deal with the reality that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I deal with kids in the Christian school all the time, and they'll do something, and somebody will come and tell you about it, and so I'll go, we'll do our launch our investigation, you know. And uh, we try to get to talk to the different students, and, and you'll have two, three, four students, whatever, will say, yeah, they, he did that. He's the one that did it, blah, blah, blah. Then you bring the student that did wrong in, and you start to deal with them. They say, I didn't do that. And so the, the first answer the student always gives you is, I didn't do that. 
Well, what makes you think you would be in my office if you didn't do something? You think I'd just call students at random to come down into my office? And so, you know, the next thing I know, I, then I tell them, I said, well, really? I said, well, we've talked to three people. We talked to two people, four people, however it is. And I said, and they all have the same information, and they all identify you as the one that is the offender. So what do you mean now? Well, 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 maybe I didn't do exactly that way, you know. And then I had to do it. And then you say, well, why would you do that? Because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. You get one on one, one against another. You know, it's one person's word is as good or bad as the other person's word. But if you got witnesses to the fact of what's going on, now you, got, you have some confirmation. And so if you go to your brother and he doesn't listen to you, take somebody with you and go over and sit down. Don't attack them. Don't be aggressive against them. Uh, but we need to have a spirit of grace. We need to have a spirit of mercy to say, well, wait a minute. Christ said the church is built upon him. And the very next statement he gave in reference to the church was dealing with problems of offenses in the church. So he said, go to your uh, brother personally, personal responsibility, and then apply a scriptural principle, which means just simply this, that you might need to take someone with you. In the church, you can take a deacon with you, take a deacon's wife with you, take the pastor with you, whatever it may be, whatever, it is, whatever is necessary. See, the key is this. Think of all that Christ has done to reconcile us to him. You think of all that God has done for the one purpose of reconciling us to him, then certainly don't you think there ought to be an effort in the believer's life to reconcile our brothers and sisters in Christ to us? And so it's about reconciliation. Then in verse 17, where we read at, it's a corporal accountability. In other words, uh, he said, if you, they won't, he wouldn't hear you, he wouldn't hear two or three with you, then you bring it before the church. And uh, uh, that, that, the most misunderstood thing you can ever do in the church is what we call church discipline. I've had to do it when I was in Dividing Creek. I've had to do it since I've been here. And every time, the purpose of discipline was for the purpose of bringing restoration, to bring the person back into the church. Paul would deal with that in 1 Corinthians. The brother wouldn't repent of his adultery and his fornication. He said, put him out of the church. And why did he say put him out of the church? So that he might come to repentance and get back in the church. The sad thing is, in the Corinthian church, the guy repented and got things right, and then they wouldn't let him back in the church. So the church wasn't conducting itself properly. I'll tell you, it's a challenge of dealing with the first principle that he gives to the church. And so we're to uh, be corporately involved. You know, in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they stole. They had said they had brought a certain amount of money from the land they sold, and when reality had told a lie, and God struck them dead right in front of the church. And I'm going to tell you, fear came on the church, and revival broke out in the church. 
And so I'm, I'm not saying we need to be going around and trying. And then you get to that. You get people that every time you turn around, we got to bring so-and-so up on church discipline. Uh, no, I think grace and prayers and, and going to the individual uh, will help. I like what Leonard Ravenhill said. Uh, today's church wants to be raptured from responsibility. <laughs> Rather than applying biblical principles, because applying biblical principles is hard. It's difficult to do that in our life. It's difficult to do that in the church. And so we just want to find a means of escape. Uh, even so, come Lord Jesus. Sorry, I don't want to deal with this problem in the church. Harry Ironside had said that. I don't know if you ever read any books or commentaries by Harry Ironside. I love his commentaries. Uh, well, you can look them up. But he said this, we need to realize that in all things, our first duty and responsibility is to God himself. So as an individual, I can maintain a proper relationship with others if I understand that my primary relationship is with God. And if I'm walking with God and I'm trying to keep my relationship right with God, it ought to be a natural response that my relationship with others is going to be right. Well, I think it was D.L. Moody said this, the Christ that's in me won't fight with the Christ that's in you. So the one way we can deal with these conflicts that develop in the church is just trying to be Christ-like and be open and honest and sincere and gracious with one another. I remember I was in Dividing Creek. Oh, my goodness, we had a big blow-up because we had a church dinner there, and somebody had brought pies over, and they put it in the refrigerator, and everything was put out on the table, so we were all eating, and Oh, my goodness, At, towards the end of the meal, everybody's having desserts, and this woman finds out that her pies were never put out for people to eat. People forgot to get the pie out of the refrigerator. I'm telling you, we almost had a church split over that thing. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, where is the Christ-likeness? You know, we're frail, we're sinful, we're wicked people, we're forgetful. And somebody forgot to put your pie out. That leaves more for you to eat when you get home, amen? It was probably me hiding it because it was one of those good pies. <laughs> we just need to realize that our first duty is not trying to get somebody. Our first duty is to be close with our God and have a special relationship with him. Now we can be able to deal with others. I like what Charles Hodge, boy, if you get any commentaries uh, on Charles Hodge, he's a great author. And these old guys were wonderful uh, commentators. He said this, all moral obligation revolves itself into the obligation of conformity to the will of God. Now, if God's not willing that any should perish, we should not rejoice if someone falls by the wayside. If God is interested in all believers being a part of the corporate worship and service of God in the church, then we ought to be concerned about getting people into that relationship. And so everything revolves around, all of our obligation revolves around just being conformed to the will of God. And so I want to be able to 
address the discipline in the church in a scriptural way because there are offenses. All the time there's offenses. And so we just need to know how to deal with them properly. So the church in Acts chapter 2. So that's the first time it's mentioned. Uh, the next time the church is mentioned is in Acts chapter 2 in uh, verse 47. And uh, it's identifying for us the church is not only a place for disciplining disobedient brethren, but it's also a place of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, as we, the early church is forming and getting started, as the apostles will begin preaching on the day of Pentecost, and uh, 3,000 souls will be saved, there's a principle that is established in Acts 2.47 in reference that the Lord uh, adds to the church those that are saved. It says that the believers were praising God and having favor, favor with all people, as the apostles, as they were preaching, and the Lord added in the church daily such as should be saved. And I think one of the, the, the um, tremendous thought processes uh, of present day Christianity in the church is we have forgotten that the church is a salvation station. So that means when people come in the building, we want to tell them about Jesus Christ. We want them to get saved. We go out visiting. Our purpose going out visiting is not just to invite people to church. That's the open door to get us to talk to them so we can lead them to Christ. It is a salvation station. And as the church was forming and beginning and getting its kickoff on the day of Pentecost, what took place was that God added to the church those that should be saved. And so the priority of the, of the church is salvation. Uh, we want to keep our relationships right so that when people come into the church, there'll be no tension in the church. They'll feel relaxed and sense the presence of God and they'll get saved. So it makes sense to me that the first time he gives instruction in reference to the church is, hey, let's take care of your relationships that break down. Why? Because unbelievers are going to come into the church and they need to sense a sense of unity and purpose and love that's in the church. And so it's a place of salvation. I remember years ago I heard an evangelist, when I was in Bible college, I think it was that's when I heard him, and he was saying about he went to this church and had a week-long meeting in the church, and he said he preached all day on Sunday, nothing happened. Preached all Sunday, Monday night, he preached, nothing happened in the church. Preached Tuesday night, nothing happened in the church. And he said it just was a coldness in the church. It was a deadness in the church. And so he was praying and he got along with, he got with the preacher and he said, man, he said, something's going on in this church. And he said, I don't understand. He said, but I'll tell you one thing, I ain't breaking through. I ain't getting through to these people. And something, God's got to do something. We need to have a prayer meeting. And uh, they called a prayer meeting. They started crying out to God in prayer. And in the service, instead of him starting to preach in the service, he said, folks, we need to pray. We need to get right with God. There's something wrong in this church. Amen. And as they were praying, after about a half hour of praying, a woman sitting all the way in the back on this side of the church and a woman was sitting all the way on the back on that side of the church. They were as far away from each other as they could possibly get. Amen. All of a sudden, they just got up 
and walked across the front of the church and met right in the middle of the church and got on their knees weeping with each other and confessing their faults one towards another and crying out to God for forgiveness and cleansing. And he said, when that happened, revival broke out because people just got up out of their seats and started coming to the altar. And the altar was filled with people weeping before God. And that night they had like 60 people saved. And I think sometimes we forget that the church is a salvation station. We as brethren need to keep our relationships right because if our relationships aren't right, we hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, if we hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in the church, then there's no conviction for people to come and get saved. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual organization. This is a living body. It's the body of Christ. And so it's a salvation station. Notice a couple of things here about it. Uh, first of all, we think when we really do know that it's a salvation, Matthew 9, 37 and 38 is where Jesus told the disciples to pray for laborers, that they would go out in the harvest and bring souls. But then in verse 41 of chapter 2, there's abundant joy. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It was not people grumbling and griping and saying, Okay, if I gotta go forward and pray, I'll go forward and pray and I'll get. No, they were excited. I don't know about you. When I got saved, I mean, God put a joy in my heart that I'd never lost. I'm going to tell you, when, when salvation takes place, I'll never forget the young boy I led to the Lord when I was in uh, uh, Pontiac, Michigan, on the back row of, of Emmanuel Baptist Church. This young boy needed to be saved. A friend of mine said, Mike, that boy needs to be saved. Why don't you go lead him to the Lord? I'd never led a person to the Lord. And I went over and I sat down and shaking and fumbling through the scriptures to try to show this young boy how to be saved. He was only seven years old. But he intimidated me. All I kept thinking is, Lord, don't let me do anything wrong. This man, this young boy's soul is weighing in the balance. I mean, I was a nervous wreck. And I went through the plan of salvation. He prayed to ask the Lord to save him. And he got up, he jumped up, and he ran all the way across the back of Emmanuel Baptist Church that seated about 3,000 people. And he went running across the back of that auditorium crying out to his mom, Mommy, 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 come see this man who saved me. I never forgot that boy. I've never forgot a man that was a businessman from Texas. I picked him up one night at the Detroit airport. Had to take him all the way up to Flint, Michigan. And I took him up there and from all the way from Detroit Airport to Flint, Michigan for two hours. I was witnessing to him and talking about the salvation. God gripped my heart. He broke my heart. I started crying like a baby. I'm driving down the road. I'm weeping and I'm crying. And I told him, I said, I'm sorry. I said, but God's been good to me. I'm telling you, God's grace has been powerful working in my life. And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing greater than coming to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I witnessed that man. Oh, I thought to myself, this man must think I am a nut. And I got up to the place where he 
the motel was. I went to drop him off. I got out and I got his luggage. I handed it to him and he told me this. I'll never forget him. He said, you know, he said, I'm 45 years old. He said, I've been a Catholic all my life. And he said, I have never heard anything as solid and secure and assuring and hopeful as what you just shared with me. I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior. I'm going to tell you, if you get a hold of, and never let go the reality of the joy, the abundant joy, because of salvation, you'll never get cold and dead in your Christian life. You'll never become dissatisfied with the church. When churches get dead and they get cold, it's because they lost their fire for souls to be saved. And so salvation, it's abundant joy. Notice, boy, well, I'll tell you, I can't believe it. I'm not going to get through this lesson tonight. It might be a hundred weeks for me to get done. All the other notes I got in my office, you folks are in trouble. There's abundant joy. Verse 42, there's accurate faith. It says, and they continue steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and, and, and prayers. And accurate faith. I had all kinds of things given to me and told to me and uh, tried to show to me to influence me uh, when before I got saved. But I'm going to tell you, when I got saved, I found the doctrines. You know, I, I read the Bible. I couldn't understand the Bible. I got saved. I started reading the Bible. It's like, wow, I never saw that before. And I'm going to tell you, God will give us the sureness of what we believe based on the scriptures if we are focused on the salvation and so they had abundant joy and they had accurate faith. We'll stop there. We'll continue next week and wrap that up and go into the next lesson. And, uh, but simplicity. Hey, what God has said to this point about the church, is it complicated? No. Well, yeah, people try to make it so complicated. Uh, they say, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Amen. <laughs> That's all you got to do. And I have found this, that God doesn't make it complicated. If he doesn't make it complicated, why in the world should I muddy the waters? Amen. So the church, the church, let's understand the church. And because of our understanding of the church, I think that God will help us in reaching out to others. All right. So be praying tonight. We want to 